Welcome to the Dr. Lori Morris podcast, where she interviews experts in health and science, sharing their expertise so you can live your healthiest life. This episode of the podcast is proudly sponsored by Fit Vegan Coaching, the world's leading whole food plant-based body recomposition program for Gen X and baby boomers. Founded by Maxime, whose personal journey began after losing his ex-fiance to breast cancer, Fit Vegan Coaching is on a mission to disease-proof the world through the transformative power of plant-based eating and fitness. This program is the Rolls Royce of plant-based coaching, offering all-inclusive services, personalized plans, world-class accountability, lifelong support, and more. Say goodbye to the yo-yo dieting and embrace a lasting transformation that will rev up your metabolism even post-transformation. Ready to take charge of your health and vitality? Head over to fitvegan.ca, that's fitvegan.ca, and mention Dr. Lori for exclusive bonus savings when you sign up. Don't miss this opportunity to join the movement towards a healthier, fitter, and more vibrant you. Are you tired of compromising between convenience and healthy eating? Look no further. Introducing Whole Harvest, your ultimate solution for wholesome plant-based meals. Whole Harvest is redefining the way you eat. Their meals are not only delicious, but also 100% whole food plant-based without any compromise. Whole Harvest takes pride in their approach. There's no oils, no added sugars, and low sodium. Plus, they have SOS free menu items available. I recommend Whole Harvest to my patients. They need convenient and compliant meals that can be delivered to their home. At Whole Harvest, you can reimagine your favorite dishes with a plant-based flair and enjoy menu items like the All-American Burger. Harvest lasagna and soba kimchi bowl. Whole harvest meals are chef crafted and made with high quality ingredients delivered straight to your door. And guess what? They ship nationwide so you can enjoy whole food, plant based meals no matter where you are. And here's an exclusive offer just for our podcast listeners. Use the discount code PLANTS30 to receive $30 off your first order. Visit wholeharvest.com and place your order today. Again, that's wholeharvest.com. Your journey to delicious whole food plant-based eating starts here. This episode of the podcast is proudly sponsored by The Healing Kitchen, your path to vibrant health. Immerse yourself in the transformative program guided by the combined expertise of myself, Dr. Lori Marbus, and Chef Brittany Giroudi, who has lost 70 pounds on a whole food plant-based diet. Here's what's in store for you. Virtual weekly sessions. Engage in an immersive 60-minute virtual session every single week where you'll delve into the world of wholesome plant-based goodness right from your own kitchen. Cooking with Brittany the first half hour. Unleash your inner chef as you're captivated by Chef Brittany Giroudi's culinary mastery that will delight your taste buds and nourish your body. Medical Q&A with Dr. Lori, the last half hour. Prioritize your well-being during the second half hour. I will personally address your medical inquiries, providing evidence-based insights and personalized advice, empowering you to make informed choices for your health. So join us on The Healing Kitchen to help you step into a healthier and most vibrant future. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marvis, and today... I am very honored to have Dr. Stephen Hayes, who is the author of A Liberated Mind and many other books. But as many of you know, I've been speaking a lot about ACT therapy and just the mindset and the mindfulness and how we engage with moving forward and changing our behaviors and understanding it. But I have the expert here in in the virtual room. So thank you, Dr. Hayes, for joining us today. Well, thanks for the opportunity. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Well, I will tell you, I was really moved by your personal story within the book um, of A Liberated Mind. And by the way, guys, it's there in the background, but it's here as well. Um, And I think for me, I love the storytelling element. And I think obviously we all engage with stories and that pulls us in and makes us listen and understand. Would you mind just sharing a little bit of how you discovered or found your pathway moving into that direction? Yeah, it's uh, we're talking 40 years ago. I've, I've been on this journey for a long, long time. But I had the good fortune, didn't think of it as good fortune at the time, of developing a panic disorder as a young assistant professor. 
which became a thread to really unraveling and it's still still useful and finding new out new things as to just my own history and how it landed but um the you know the way i dealt with my first panic attack which happened in a full a meeting in a psychology department watching full professors fight as they say in a way that only wild animals and full professors are capable of which really pushed my buttons that I didn't even understand why so profoundly until I had unraveled a little bit of my own childhood history and listening to my parents fight in the other room and things of that kind. But it it challenged me because when I brought the evidence-based things that I knew out of a kind of early CBT person with exposure and cognitive therapy kinds of ideas, it just didn't have much traction. But what did after a three-year spin down and into the hell of panic disorder uh, is finally hitting bottom and turning in a direction that may really links more to a whole generational thing that I went through as uh, you're looking at an ex-hippie. My hair was long there at the time. But when I turned towards some of the kinds of things that people were exploring with you know, Eastern traditions, mindfulness traditions, but not just that, some of the deeper clinical traditions that are more emotionally focused, gestalt therapy, and, uh, you know, some of the body work and so forth that was popular in the 60s and 70s. That did give me traction. And it kind of happened at a pivotal moment where basically I realized there's no way out, but there is a way in. And if you spin around and, you know, metaphorically uh, leap into the mouth of the dinosaur that's chasing you, you wake up. Uh, I'm saying it that way because that was a childhood dream that I often had. And I did figure out, even as a young child, if you ran towards the dinosaurs and jumped in their mouth, you'd wake up. And that kind of momentary lucid dream as a child, I think, is actually might have even been a seed as to making that move uh, as an adult. And that had been such a burden for so many years, really, look, well, three years, but looking like it was going to take away my career. I couldn't even give a lecture in front of 10 undergraduates. You know, I'd have to show them films. And even that was hard because my hands would shake so bad. Wow. But uh, I, I just, this, is, this is fascinating. And I've spent 40 years trying to dig down to what the processes are in the mind that can walk otherwise successful people etc into a place where they almost can't function and finding the smallest set of processes after 40 years of work that do the most good in the most areas for the most people and i think i can actually prove that now I, but i can if it sounds prideful give me a chance to prove it that uh, because where I, what I didn't do is run right out and say, hey, I've got a new solution to anxiety. That was 20 years later, I published the first textbook on that. But after that 20 years, that 20 years of development was about what are the things that people do, the processes, the steps they take, like the word process is like a procession. It's like a parade. There's things that you do that lead you down a pathway that put you in a place where it can be really hard to manage mental health areas, but not just that, behavioral health areas, diet, sleep, exercise, the, the psychological challenges, physical disease, or social wellness, prosperity, running a, a business or having uh, relationships at work or succeeding at sport or whatever it is that you're trying to do. Turns out, not so complicated. Yeah. And uh, it isn't just me. There's a, we've summarized the entire world's literature. You can get basically everything we know about how change happens psychologically down to a pretty small set that you can learn and deploy, whether it's called ACT or not, I don't care. Uh, what I do care about is people putting processes that lift them, lift their lives up into their own uh, heads and hearts and hands. It's mm, beautiful. Yes. And uh, the story of the the child, I think is, is fantastic because you speak to the monster in your dreams and you speak to that you can bring it down and whether it be act, can you speak to the tenets of what those are and yeah. um, kind of share with people? Because I really, I've been telling every single patient to read the liberated mind. I can't even tell you. It's like, it's just part of my daily to do list for the, my patients. But so if you could share, that would be really great. Thank you. Well, thank you for, for that. And um, 
really uplifted by that because uh, what the liberated mind does tries to tell the personal story, the science story, and enough of the self-help part that you can really apply it to yourself. And then there's so many resources out there, specific books for specific issues, but also just things you don't have to pay anything. If you know where to look, you can go on the internet and get a you know, vast amount of support. The, the core of it is this, is that we are riding a tiger. We created this tool that you and I are using right now, symbolic language. You know, early on, the hominids probably did it, but not. we know the chimps don't because the language-trained chimps don't do what your baby does that lead you into being able to speak and with a, a meaning and listen with understanding. And it's taking the it's taking advantage of brain structures and our basic uh, underlying uh, behavioral psychology uh, in ways that are almost almost parasitic. That you know you can have uh, learning functions that are half a billion years old, such as being able to learn by consequences, that are interfered with actively by the blah 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 that we're saying from morning to night, and uh, you. You can see it even in what happens and how the brain filters out information that doesn't fit your narratives, doesn't fit your sense of self. So we're kind of fighting a, or dealing with a clash between a wonderful thing that gives us the science and technology that we have, the ability for me to talk to you thousands of miles away in real time, and it's amazing. And we can have everything that non-human animals want to be happy and be absolutely miserable. And that kind of paradox is what this is about. And basically what the processes are that will dismantle this clash and manage this class is learning to be more emotionally uh, open and flexible, be more cognitively open and flexible, to come into the present moment and not disappear into the ruminated past or the worrisome future. Rumination and worry can be fine in some circumstances. You do want to rehearse your history and think about the future, but you need to be able to come to the center and do that consciously from that deeper, almost more spiritual part of you that is able to notice um, with equanimity what's happening in your life and connect you in consciousness with others. So you need to be more open, the first part. You need to be aware, the second part. We've done all that. You can say you're being more mindful if the M word doesn't frighten you, or you could just say you're more situationally aware. You're just more here. Mm -hmm. When you've done all that, then you can turn what towards what brings uh, meaning and purpose into your life. What are your deepest yearnings? What do you really want to be about? What do you want to stand for? What are your values? And then organize your behavior around that. And then you have to, all you need, if you can just do those things, six things and remember to put them into social relationships your business family communities so the social level and take care of your body by a physiological level if you do that that's 98 percent of everything we know about how change happens and there's a hundred and different ways of saying it and there's all these kind of terms and that's fine i don't need to have everybody talk act talk Mm -hmm. I do want people to know that learning how to be more open, aware, and actively engaged in life with these features of emotionally and cognitively open or in the now consciously or values and commitment to them, plus scaling it to your relationships and community and taking care of your body. That's not such a big set. You can learn that and um, look around and you'll see over and over again the things that you are uplifted by. And the people you're lifted up by, the heroes that you have, the people who've been kind to you, all models and show and focus on these very processes. So let's start, stop fighting about, uh, you know, how to talk about it or, you know, which technique is best or all of that. Come together in kind of a social agora with all these different things, whether it's artists or monks or scientists or uh, you know, just people who know how to be best friends and learn from each other in a way that helps create modern minds for the modern world, because we're ripping and tearing with our young people at the fabric of what you need to be able to be here when that computer in the pocket can expose you to pain and horror going around the world 24-7, mm -hmm. constant flow of judgment and comparison 
to others, uh, whether it's on your uh, Instagram uh, uh, you know, page or your TikTok flow or whatever, those are hard to manage. And you're seeing more pain, hearing more judgment and being exposed to more comparison as a young person now than you know, even, you know, your grandfather went to war. I mean, it's, uh, it's hard to be human nowadays. So you, you need to have a, a guide to what to learn, what to focus on. And that's what I've tried to do with the liberated mind and, and my work. Uh, but hopefully not in a grabby way, hope in a way that empowers your ability to see, hey, that's why I like meditation, or that's why I find it important to share my emotions with others or all the 101 things that we learned by trial and error about how to live a successful life. Mm, no, that's beautiful. I, I will tell you, I have three grown children and they're in their mid to late twenties now. And uh, I kind of lucked out because that social media piece was just moving into their lives and they haven't engaged with it as much as I've seen other young people. And it it can be very constructive or destructive, like you're kind of mentioning, like we're meeting people I would have never met, like yourself, for example, versus, you know, you're, they do compare themselves, but it's also the adults. So a lot, most of my patients are women. And, you know, I would love to hear how you would take someone, because this is, I think, many, many people who are dealing with chronic disease. Number one, I think we've forgotten what it's like to feel well. We're burdened with, prescriptions and fatigue and stress. And we walk away from understanding that we there is a better path and a better way of living. But they find it so hard to engage in those habits and that they just feel stuck in a rut. But it's, it's what's interesting is I will hear stories of people, they do compare themselves to others. So they instantly feel like a failure and unable to pull themselves out of the mire. Even if I speak as myself, positive to them is like, there's nothing I can do. How do you help someone who really feels like they're really stuck and just can't maneuver or they keep falling back into these old habits? How do you help them see or act in a different way or move in that direction? What would be your advice to someone? Because I feel like that is such a big piece of what I see. Well, ironically, almost everybody who feels stuck, if you repeatedly ask them what's going on over the last three hours, the last three hours, the last three hours, over and over and over again, don't feel as stuck. There are hmm. small things that are happening. And we kind of know that because I can ask people about the times when things have been better. Or if you cut around the analytic judgmental mind with things like, well, show me with your body, you at your best when dealing with this. In university, Universally, if, if we're going to play that game like you did play the game of statues as a kid and you'd freeze to try to show something or what our artists and sculptors do, you've got a body, you can show something with it. People's head at their best, their head comes up, their eyes open up, their arms and hands go out and they show a posture that's more open, aware and actively engaged. Universally, if you ask people to show their bodies at, as an expression of them at their worst, they close down, shut down, their eyes close, they bend at the waist, they bring their arms and hands in, they may flop on the floor, they may clench their teeth. Or, you know, it looks like a, a flea fight or flop kind of strategy. Well, if everybody can show it, then everybody knows it. Mm. You just follow people and you ask people in the grit and grain there, we are even noticing it. Mm. But we're not noticing that we're noticing it and we don't know what the it is, so it disappears. It's like we kind of get it gut level and we don't get it head level because this head level is a dominantly, it's not exclusively this if you learn how to use it differently, for example, through meditation and so forth, but dominantly it's become a problem solving organ. Mm. Figure out the future, weigh the alternatives, pursue the one that's better. Yeah, but there's certain things that are very unwise that come out of that. For example, your mind will tell you that it's bad to be sad. If I just said good or bad, I say the word sad, what are you going to say? They're going to say bad. Mm -hmm. Does that include when your mother dies? Mm -hmm. Does that include when your pet has a serious illness? Does that include when you hear your doctor tell you that you, know, you have a chronic disease? Mm -hmm. You're not going to be sad? Really? So 
this organ is foolish. I mean, our poets, our movie makers, our novel writers, our musicians, our artists, humans have been saying for a long, long time that um, the whole of us need all these motions. They need, we, we need all of them. But the organ between your ears says, I only want the positive ones. Well, I've worked in addictions. I know where that can lead you. You want to have happy motions from morning to night and nothing else? You want to fix that in place? It's even called a fix. Mm. Why? Because it holds it in place. Joy junkies know how to do it, literally, chemically. And it's not a joyful path. It'll ruin your life. So can't we be a little wiser? I don't mean it to be judgmental, but can we follow the whispers of our heart instead of the loud dictating voice of our problem-solving mind only? Yeah, we can do that. We can learn how to do that. And when you do, you'll find a wisdom within that will be very familiar. This is not like spooky, weird, from the stars, psychobabble nonsense. It's simply having a humility to one step at a time, walk towards what works. What works in your actual experience, not just in the chatterbox between your ears. Well, so that will mean some habit changes because you've grooved channels of problem solving and taking the short-term gain at the cost of long-term pain. You've refused to exercise when, because it's it, it hurts. Yeah, it, you can do what needs to be done so it doesn't hurt unnecessarily, but some degree, to some degree it hurts, period, for everybody because mm -hmm. that combination of stress and then time to rebuild is how your strength builds, how your flexibility builds and so forth. Any person in yoga or exercise will tell you that. And people with chronic disease sometimes have a real challenge that way. I mean, chronic pain will tell you what you need to do is sit down and do nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a pathway towards severe chronic pain that will put you in a chair, unable to walk next door to talk to your friend. I mean, and boy, it sounds judgmental the way I said it, but we know, and the physicians know, the healthcare practices know. I think one of the things that's very, very cool about what's happening now in healthcare is that persons like yourself are looking more seriously at nutrition and exercise and sleep, looking more seriously at maybe it's not all to be found in medications. Maybe it's not all to be found with short-term but rather long-term uh, uh, benefits and so uh, a person who's in the situation you're describing here's what i would say could we own up show up put our eyes on the horizon and one small step at a time build those habit habits those atomic habits you know as the book says that will move you towards the kind of life you want to live and let's see how far it takes you it may not take you uh, exactly where you were before an injury, before the illness, before... No, it may not do that. But at least it will allow you to be the best you you can be now. And, you know, with age, I'm speaking as a 75-year-old. <laughs> you start losing functions. You start losing friends. Things start happening. Mm -hmm. that's, that's in the future of all of us, as mm -hmm. I say jokingly. You know, all of us will get old if we live long enough. You know, so how about learning how to walk through a whole life and not this cartoon, happy, happy, joy, joy life, mm. the smiley face button life that is really not happy. It's not real. It's not worth pursuing. And you could easily show me with your body that you already know it. Mm. Yeah, no, that's that's really good. And, and it's funny because I I took your the teachings from a liberated mind and <clears throat> some other things i've been reading and i i really want to get better at utilizing those tools but the one thing that i did i have an intake form so i see patients and they come in and we just ask you know basic stuff what medicines you're on what have you been diagnosed with but before i do that i started asking questions related to values and i'd like to dig into that a little bit because 
um, I've stolen one of your phrases from your book and I've been using it with patients um, regarding values as the compass and that there's never an end to it. It's just your direction. And these yeah. goals are these little things that are moving you towards that direction, which I thought was such clarity of the understanding of how that to speak that. But one of the things that happened, I had a patient in, I asked her, or I asked in my intake form, what is your most important value or what brings you joy? Um, and the response was, I've never been asked that before. And I've never thought of that before. And this is someone in their 60s. And when I spoke to her during her appointment, she was almost to tears. She goes, you know, it made me so sad to think that I've never thought of that before. Yeah. Um, but so can you speak to a little bit about the work on understanding values clarification? Because I think a lot of people will say, oh, health is my value or this is my value. But maybe how do we get down to like, what is that real core piece a value that will move you to do the hard things because we've all done, you know, those hard things in life. Could you speak to that a little? Yeah, that's really awesome. And there's so many things about you said there, Laura, that are, that are just right on. I mean, the single most common marker emotionally of really opening up to values is tears mm. because we hurt where we care. And that's part of why values are hard even to know because we can get into these habits of not hurting. And so we have this idea, if we can kind of hold our breath until we're blue and it's all over, that's a good, you know, measure of life. You know, it's not. Life is to be lived and li and living, really living is about something, about many things. And it's up to you. It can be informed by your community, your religious traditions and so forth, but you have to choose it. And it comes out of this deepest, almost most hidden part I've had people say that, like, I've never been asked that. And then they'll say things like, and that's the most intimate thing I've ever been asked. That's the most central thing I've ever been asked. And there's that kind of gut check moment of really, what am I up to? What journey am I on? What direction do I want to be? If it was really up to me, and it is, mm -hmm. where would I be headed? Not as what do I achieve? What is the award? What is the prize? How big is the bank account? What kind of car do I drive? Oh, please, you know, on your deathbed, you're not going to be saying, oh, I, I'm so proud I owned a Buick. It's just not going to happen. You're going to be thinking about, you know, what did I stand for in my life? The quick way to get to it, I know four ways. They're quick, mm -hmm. sweet, sad, heroes and stories. You know, if you pick a really, really sweet moment in any area that really just kind of got level, lifted you up in this, with that sense of vitality and connection, slow it down, look with care, unpack it, and you're going to find something that you yearn to have as a quality of what you actually do. Values are not things you achieve there's things you head towards and they're intrinsic to behavior they're intrinsic by behavior i mean broadly everything we do sad take a place where things really stabbed you through the heart boy that was so painful you were betrayed in love you're lied to whatever the thing is flip it over and you'll find on the back side of that sheet of paper with all the pain on one side there's something that you're yearning for if you were betrayed and it stabbed you through the heart, you're yearning for loyalty and, loyalty and intimacy, for trust, for attachment. Well, that's not bad. Yeah, it carries sad with it. It does. Carries, it carries pain with it. But that vulnerability, that openness to being wounded, comes with the embrace of this is of importance to me. And without that embrace, how the heck are you ever going to know even what direction to go in? Maybe I should just have superficial relationships. Maybe I should just, you know, uh, you know, be having sex with uh, everybody without even thinking about it or whatever the thing is. Yeah, but if that's not really what you yearn for, uh, that's not going to lift you up. But that was kind of compromises of, uh, you know, maybe I'll just satisfy myself to something that isn't really what I want is kind of like the way I say it usually is a person who's thirsty drops a glass of cold water and then decides from now on there's no liquids for me you know because it's so 
sweet and sad. One that I love because it's so easy is heroes. Mm-hmm. Just tell me who your heroes, heroes are. Mm. I mean, people you really look up to. Not superficially, but really deeply. There's something that really resonates with you about their life. Mm. Maybe how they, even they interacted with you if you knew them personally. Slow it down. Look at that. And I bet you they're manifesting something that you would like to put into your own life's moments. Those are values. And uh, the final one is stories. If it was really up to you, what kind of story you're writing? What kind of story would you want to write where you don't get to decide the exact chapters or what the elements are? You may get a diagnosis in the next week of a serious illness. All of us are vulnerable to that. Mm-hmm. You may have an injury that happens through the behavior of somebody else on the on the road or whatever. You don't get to decide the elements but you do get to decide the theme. Hmm. You want to write a hero's journey? Well, think of all our great stories. Think of what our artists are telling us. They are not like, oh, yeah, and then everything worked great for that person from beginning to the end. Nobody wants to read that story. They would be so boring. You read right. the story about who, me? I'm not up for this. Oh, my God. Oh, it's too much. It's a... And their fears, their self-judgment, their doubts, their... and then they find some strength within often with help of uh, spiritual leaders or others you know gandalf shows up or mm-hmm. uh, you know the uh the uh, r2d2 <laughs> and tells you what the message was and what you're going to need to do and in these great stories that we love watching or reading about somehow or another that person that little person mm, mobilizes their ability, finds a different sense of self, allies with their friends and takes arm against, you know, and finds the golden fleece or throw the ring into the crack of doom or, you know, defeat the uh, evil emperor. And then it, through that committed action, it comes back to the next adventure and you're sending off your children to Hogwarts or whatever the thing is for their adventure. But so you're living an adventure right now Hmm. and it contains elements like you might have a chronic disease that contains an element just like the heroes that you've read about from childhood on what kind of story do you want to write right now so there's four ways in Hmm. i love the fact i just love laura that you're putting it on on your intake forms Mm -hmm. i'm busy developing apps and things like that that put that in those kinds of questions into the intake forms of health care professionals you know working on how to provide the nudges and bumps to move forward in some small way in these processes Mm -hmm. liberate and uplift people and i think if we do that as a human community and find ways of doing that that are multi-channeled it's not always going to be, for example, in church, as it used to be. It's just not. In the modern world, none of the above is the fastest growing religious group. Right. It's not going to be just uh, in any one way. We're going to mm-hmm. have to have all hands on deck as to how do we uplift ourselves, our children, our culture, and create a, a kinder, softer, more values-based world to face these big challenges that we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I I agree. And I I love that you're working with healthcare workers and providers. So I think the pandemic really gave us time to sit and reflect on how quickly our healthcare providers could be burnt out. But it just, honestly, it just aggravated a broken system already. And um, I was fortunate that I had started a, a telemedicine company and sold it last summer. Um, so I was already kind of stepped out of the rat race, so to speak, but I was in the military and I saw a lot of interesting things. I've been in a variety of different healthcare settings, but I do know the one thing that I hear often from my fellow colleagues, physicians, nurses, PT, it doesn't matter. The reason they love lifestyle medicine so much is that they're going back to the core elements of health and seeing people make dramatic changes in their life and really relieve themselves, mostly of chronic disease, many times reversal, but at least improvement, like you said, kind of getting them to the best health they can be at this particular moment. 
but they what we find though is it's an antidote to burnout and i think it's getting back to their value as why we went into medicine because you don't just walk into the idea of becoming a doctor without understanding there's a there's a decade of sacrifice or more of your life doing really uncomfortable and hard difficult things um and you lose your value when you're stuck in this treadmill right this rat race of providing more prescriptions we're getting sicker patients you know my daughter's in her third year of residency in family medicine in boston and she's already complaining about and i'm like you're um, you're not even out in the real world yet it's not even going to get any better <laughs> and it makes me so sad to see such a bright mind and others like her high suicide rate is amongst physicians um so given that we're in this situation that we're at, how would you prescribe for doctors, especially primary care doctors? Cause we're, we get the brunt of the grunt work. Yes, we do. How can they utilize these tools in a very, you know, constricted time setting um, and effectively, and really maybe start plugging into their values where, um, that brings joy to the patient and to themselves. Do you have any suggestions would be? Yeah, great. I do. And, you know, this is pretty well researched. I mean, we're really talking about things where we have scores of randomized trials and things that are relevant to this. Uh, burnout is directly related to these processes we're talking about, these psychological flexibility processes. Longitudinally, they're predictive of, of burnout. And, uh, you know, it's something like three out of four uh, physicians will express significant level of, of burnout. The data I've seen here in, at the University of Nevada, where I, I just retired, but uh, mm -hmm. my colleague Ramona Humanfar has been working for years at the School of Medicine, where we now have required courses on ACT in our School of Medicine. Oh, that's amazing. And we, we uh, do it in part for patient care, but first and foremost, and it starts with self-care. And so mm -hmm. my my advice would be, look, if you're giving yourself, giving your patients advice that doesn't work for you, of course, you know, I don't mean this in some idiosyncratic way, you know, like you have, but when you're talking about things like how to be a whole person facing these challenges, if it doesn't resonate with you, then it is really hard for you to to suggest it to others with honesty and with the vigor it needs to be able to put it into people's lives. So it's not selfish to start with yourself. Mm. Let's see what are the things that would help lift you up? You know, and some of that is situational. Some of that may require, you know, you a psychologically flexible person put in a psychologically inflexible environment, mm. able to achieve the work outcomes and the system systematic kind of outcomes so when when you're in a uh, you know uh, a world that isn't organized around that uh that can be hard but some we have a lot to say about that um how do we organize our health teams for example and the physician is also often looked to as being the primary determinant there if you're in a multidisciplinary setting mm -hmm. let's bring wisdom to that um when we've done that kind of surprising things happen. I mean, people have things like bring your children to work day, or they have a, mm -hmm. a, a moment of silence before every, every group meeting, or they learn how to use some of these flexibility concepts in their discussions about what they're doing, or they take the time to have a, a warm handoff uh, when you're moving to the, the next provider or for the next shift, or that enables better communication that lands better and results in better patient care. All these kinds of things can be built in kind of one step at a time. So um, I would start with, if you're people are listening and they're health providers themselves and they're really stressed out and so forth, uh, you could absolutely do worse than checking out a liberated mind if you don't want to do that. Um, you know, the single most commonly downloaded document in the entire World Health Organization website is an ACT self-help book called Doing What Matters in Times of Stress. And it's been subject to something like seven randomized trials now by WHO. 
and we know why it works. It works because it increases psychological flexibility and it touches the lives of people who've lost everything. Uh, people who was uh, adopted by WHO and the, the head of mental health there, uh, Mark Van Almeren, uh, years ago, who came to me and said, is there anything we can do? Because these diagnostic categories just don't tell you what to do with people who've been in war because everything goes awry, whether it's diet, sleep, aggression, uh, not just classic diagnosed depression or whatever. And I said, yeah, of course there is. We need to help people become more psychologically flexible. And that's possible. And so with people who've lost everything and are sitting in dirt and you know, barely made it out with their lives and maybe even saw their children die on the way, you know, South Sudanese refugees in Uganda and things like that, Syrian refugees in Turkey. We get effect sizes in preventing these kinds of problems that are really so shocking. I mean, the, a year after exposure to this, refugees who just escaped war have half the level of mental health disorders diagnosable if they weren't diagnosable at the time as compared to a really good control group. Wow. So I can give you the link uh, and there's an yes. easy bit.ly link. If you know bit.ly, just type out WHO, all capitals, underline, and then ACT, all capitals, it'll take you to the page where you can get this free book. Why am I suggesting this? It's because what I'm saying is some of our best scientific bodies, World Health Organization, the, uh, the NICE guidelines in the UK, the CDC, you know, have called out the importance of these psychological flexibility processes. And if you can learn how to put them in your own life as a physician, and then realize with just five minutes or two minutes, or you can plant a seed with that next patient and maybe even have a meeting that's more efficient because it's deeper, it cuts through the, the underbrush. There's a, a team that's done this in primary care they have the, what they call the primary care integration model. Uh, Kirk Strassel and Patty Robinson. Kirk was the author on the original ACT book. Uh, they've put in all of the military hospitals from the U.S. Uh, around the world, has, have an ACT expert somewhere in there, the Air Force Hospital, very often in the primary integration programs that are ongoing in military hospitals because they've shown that just a tiny little bit that with nudges and bumps, you as a physician can help your clients be more psychologically flexible and you're going to get better compliance. You're going to get better health outcomes and they will feel uh, more listened to by you. So it doesn't mean you have to become a psychotherapist and spend 50 minutes, you know, doing therapy. That's not the point. It's that, uh, for example, person comes in really with distress over sadness. And of course, you could quick diagnose of depression and throw an antidepressant at it. Yeah, one out of four women are on antidepressants in the US of A last year, which is preposterous. If you look at the randomized trials, it's probably only really helpful and useful for the most severe and even then with tapered doses and with uh, uh, care about the, the magnitude because of the sexual side effects, long-term opponent process effects. I mean, you're messing around with serotonin systems that you just don't want to mess around with easily if you put people on high-dose, long-use. It's not good practice. I know why we do it, but it's... And then once there, it's really hard to back out of it too because your body now really expects that. It's made adjustments within a matter of weeks. Yeah. So can we instead say something like, well... What is going on? Let's say there has been a loss. Can you normalize that? Can you say, you know, actually, you know, sadness at that level is really hard. But there are some things that you may be able to do that will help you open up and walk into that and maybe even learn from that. And so here's my script for you. Here's a little self-help book. Here's a website. Here's, you know, it's, or Here's some, a, a thing I've pulled out of my file as a, a little exercise you might try with yourself. And if it resonates, here's a place you can go. 
we can be in the healthcare system conduits for mm -hmm. things that go beyond simply scripting. Mm -hmm. And that might be looking at nutrition. It includes exercise. It includes learning how to hold your emotions in a way they're more open, not get wrapped around your thoughts, focus on the present moment and focus on your values. Mm -hmm. It's not so hard. So uh, tiny little nudges and bumps like that when, when, when your clients look up to you and give you great credibility could be hugely helpful to the people that you serve. And the other cool thing about that is if you've done the work yourself, hugely ameliorative to any sense of burnout, you know that you're doing something that matters because you know it personally from the inside out. Mm -hmm. No, that's a, exactly right. I definitely think physicians are in a unique place in society to be kind of conduits of this um you know they it, well it brings it i'll go back to there was a, a study um i forgot his name it's left me at the moment uh, where obesity is actually kind of contagious in the sense that you look at the trials in you people you're most likely around even two or three removed like my husband's boss could have some impact on my weight and but you looked at those people who are influencers and physicians are really unique because we see people in their most vulnerable state. There's an already an automated trust component. And we have on general, I'd say, you know, in my past, my panel has been 1500 to 2000 people. And if you're in a smaller community, there's families and, you know, the repercussions can be quite significant. So I, I think focusing on well, plus they're dear to my heart, but physicians in particular are, uh, it's so critical to help them understand their valued because we have been almost devalued and kind of pushed aside as that we're just another cog in a wheel. Um, but, um, and we're not very good at standing up for ourselves. We've done a very poor job of that. Um, personally, I believe so, but no, I think that's lovely. And I can't wait to dive into <laughs> I will put a link to this as well, um, to the the paper or the book that you're describing. Um, that's phenomenal. And I know I want to be respectful of your time. Could you just give a, we spoke quite a bit to the, psycholo the psychology um, and the flexibility component, the psychological flexibility. Could you just give a little description of what that means from being maybe less flexible to being in a more flexible state? Like, what does that look like? Is there a continuum? Yeah. Is there a flip switch? Like, what, what does that look it like? Is, it is a continuum, although it's kind of a flip switch in this way because it's an integrated system and they tend to hang out together. So there's six processes I've mentioned, and I've mentioned it in three pil pillars, being more open, aware, and actively engaged. But really, statistically, when you look, they come together as a kind of a core of six things, but then socially extended and extended also to your body. And it's like six sides of a box. If you have weakness in any one side of a box, the box is not as strong. You can't stand on it. If you have a strong sides, you know, uh, you can stand on boxes as they're made, made out of cardboard. I mean, it's not that you each thing has to be, you know, I'm Iron Man. You can, mm -hmm. you, you can start with where you are but build all of these six things and learn how to extend them. Well, the, uh, let me give you the flip side of flexibility, which is inflexibility. So let's say you have a worrisome thought, which can take you out of the present moment, but it can also wrap you around um, self-judgment, judgment of others. It can lift up maybe difficult emotions, anger, disappointment, uh, fear. Um, well, that might do something like keep you awake at night. And now you're focusing on, oh God, why was that policy put in? Or why did that person say to me? Or why am I not appreciated? Or why was I criticized? Or whatever the thing is, right? Those are all inflexibility processes of cognitive entanglement of being, and you can see why it's actually six that are three that are one, because they're all interlocked, interrelated. That cognitive entanglement of, of being pulled down into it has now an attentional focus. It takes you out of the present moment. You can almost be, you know, mindless. It's like that state you go into when you're driving and it's now miles later and, oh, where did I go? You can do that for days and weeks and months, you know, as you disappear into rumination or worry. Or... But it's also 
raising emotions that you're not sure what to do with. And sometimes your mind will tell you, just push the bad ones out. Mm. And now pushing the bad ones out, you mean you have to constantly look to see if they're gone yet. And uh, that's not a wise thing. It's, it's not wise with pain. It's not wise with tinnitus, which I have. It's not wise with lots of things. You don't. You want to learn the attentional flexibility to respectfully decline your mind's invitation to attend to it because it's just not useful. All of those things put on hold. What do I really care about? And so your values become unclear. People like that client, nobody's ever asked me that. I bet you there was a long pause, even with the tears, to even put words to it. Yeah. But we know being able to connect with and put words to your values is important. So when you chronically uh, do this, you become ignorant about your own yearnings. And, and that's not a good thing because it's like trying to navigate a field without a compass that's complex. To use that metaphor of a compass at the beginning, I really like it. When you have a compass, you know, no matter how far you go west, there's more west to go. It's not mm -hmm. like you ever get there. You just head in that direction, head in that direction. And you do it how one step at a time and then building habits that allow you to navigate. Some of these challenges, sometimes you have to change direction. You have to walk through that divorce. You have to deal with that a job loss or quitting your job and adopting another one facing financial stress. So the inflexibility processes are cognitive rigidity, entanglement, disappearing into your thoughts, causing attentional inflexibility, emotional inflexibility and rigidity, not being able to deepen be aware of, give voice to your emotions and doing it inside a tiny range. Mm. Oh, we don't do anger in my family. Mm. Okay, great. What are you going to do? And I understand that. And I, you know, my dad was an exploder and my mom was a suppressor. So I got on both sides and anger is really hard for me. It's really scary. And sometimes I do explode, not very mm. much anymore, thankfully. Mm. But okay, that doesn't mean that you get to like, just put anger aside. Anger is a useful emotion. Mm -hmm. It's there for a reason. Right. Every emotion is there for a reason. Well, how are you going to be able to even contact it when sadness because your parent died or your brother died, as mine did just eight months ago for our illness? Mm. Yeah, but how, you want to access that. I've noticed after my brother dying, a physician, by the way, and founding mm. dean of our school of public health a wonderful guy wonderful man amazing ran a uh, half iron man at uh, age 70 wow and rode through the mountains and fields of italy just uh, two months before his death with massively metastasized cancer he didn't know that he had wow uh, that but when i contact that i find that i'm doing things like to colleagues that I've worked with, before I hang up on my Zoom meeting, I say, I love you, because I do. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that pridefully, I'm just saying, why didn't I say that? Mm -hmm. Why didn't I periodically take the time to send a note of appreciation to people who I appreciate? Mm -hmm. I don't know, I think it's because you can easily get in habits that are not values-based, but mm -hmm. that are not really in tune with your own emotions. So I've given you a kind of a scattershot thing of what inflexibility looks like. It's familiar ground. We all do it. Mm -hmm. None of us are shining stars of emotional flexibility, probably. We're probably <laughs> no Dalai Lamas among us. But one step at a time, you can get better. And, you know, here's the thing I've noticed as a mental health professional. People don't come in for treatment of mental health problems when things are getting better. Mm. speed is not as important if you can sense progress that's enough to put you on a route and you know if you have somebody who's making progress in exercise making progress and let's say nutrition come back and see them a year later and they look different they feel different they are different and it happened one day at a time one hour at a time the mind says tomorrow 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 nonsense mm. I mean, if you're in ill health, that didn't happen tomorrow, very likely. Some, especially for some of these things that are chronic diseases that are fed by our health practices and our nutritional practices. So 
let's empower people to walk that kind of journey. So let's start with ourselves, not because we're selfish, but because we want to speak with honesty and genuineness to the people that we serve. Let's create in community work sites that empower that journey, where we really take the time at our very busy day as we're doing the shift handoff, just to have a mindful moment, it takes 30 seconds, really listen to everybody. Nobody has to you know, put tape over their mouth, even if they're the nurse and the physician is in charge or whatever the thing is. Get a community going where you get to be your best self gradually, one step at a time. Burnout's not going to be what the word that will come to your mouth for that kind of world. Mm -hmm. And we can do better. We can do better in the interests of the lives we serve as healthcare professionals. Mm -hmm. And I think to put a period on it, good behavioral science, uh, you know, can be, I think, now relied on. And I'm not just talking about the DSM diagnoses and stuff like that, which I think actually can push people into cubby holes instead of empowering them. I'm talking about what are the processes that uplift human lives? You'll find them, yes, in your art literature and uh, scriptural texts, but now you can find them in your behavioral science journals too. And so uh, could we stop fighting over which exactly the brand label is mm. and focus more on what is the need of the individuals in front of us mm. and do a kind of a version of personalized medicine mm. that is fits the needs of this individual who may be coming to see you really for a, a behavioral health problem that involves psychological issues, something like 60% of the primary care visit, visits are really behavioral health visits where behavior is a big part of it. And that 60% is probably an underestimate. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't mean you have to become a psychologist. Mm -hmm. It does mean you have to you know, learn how to empower people on a journey that includes their whole self their mind and their body, their emotions, cognition, and values, their relationships, family, settings, work site. That's the physician has that role mm -hmm. and can live that role without changing professions with just a little bit of help. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've given you some uh, places you can go mm -hmm. and some people to read or talk with. You got to get uh, Kirk Strassel and Patty Robinson on your Yes, they're just wonderful uh, 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 sort of ambassadors for behavioral health care to put into tiny kernels that you can mm -hmm. put in your primary care practice. And uh, that knowledge is there and it needs to be utilized. Mm, I, I love that. Um, it kind of goes back to one thing that everything you're describing is I, I tell patients, you know, I really want to be a prescriber of hope. And so that is really what I found is that it's maybe it's the helping them discover that there is values that will help them move in the right direction, but just allowing people saying, I, I give you permission to have hope to have a different outcome or a different thought or emotion. And it really changes and elevates the conversation that I have with them. And I've definitely seen them more engaged with, you know, the habits and everything I need them to do. So, but um, again, thank you so much. Anything on hope. Yes, sir. A good place to start with hope, though, is to also know when to give up on things. And so yes. there's a kind of place of, I call it creative hopelessness, of mm. looking at, okay, well, that's not working. So enough of that. Right. And people often will come to you as a physician saying, if I do more of what I've been doing that has been hurting me, will that work? And the answer is no. Right. And, but, but we all want to be right in a way. And it's easy for our habits you start looking for justification even in your providers right. and instead we said no what does your experience tell you has mm -hmm. that been helpful no not really exactly. what if we did something really new so the deeply hopeful message is not to get rid of this sense of okay that's not a good pathway i think there's right. a place for hopelessness because right. you're never going to be able to turn into a happy, happy, joy, joy, smiley face button. That is not a positive vision of life. It's never worked for anybody. Right. And despite what the culture says you says to you, in its worst, to try to sell products and goods, usually, can we put that down? Mm -hmm. 
back to what you deeply know is so and mm. that whole message that you can be responsible for your own life and in the original meaning of the word you're, you're able to respond mm -hmm. you can do this one step at a time yeah. is a deeply hopeful message right new direction is possible new habits can be formed a new life can open up yeah and um, you're not going to do it by suppression and run away you're going to be do it by direction and one step at a time yeah no absolutely um everything you said is wonderful so i feel like i could just download your brain and everything in your experience and just kind of you know I've, I've you'll read books and you'll meet people and you just wish that you could take their experience and utilize the wisdom that you've already created but one small piece of that would be to read your works and listen to other things that you've done. And so I want to say thank you again for taking the time of your day for being here. I'm sure it'll provide wonderful benefit to those who are listening. And I really appreciate you and everything that you've done for us um, humans out here. And uh, again, thank you. I really appreciate you. Well, thanks for the opportunity. And if you want to follow my work, you can go to my website. It's just my name, stephenchayes.com or follow any of the resources that we've talked about today. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll have all your links below. And again, thank you. And thanks everyone for listening. Please check out A Liberated Mind to start with. And I will have the the the, the resource um, from the WHO, um, WHO. And uh, we'll try to get Dr. Russell and Dr. Are they both doctors, Robinson and Dr. Russell? Yeah, Kirk Strassel. And Strassel. And then they have great books out there on primary care integration that I really recommend if, if you're in that field.